Hello, everybody. I'm Dan Maholland, and with me is my partner, Henry Cassell, and we have a new Health Law Expressions podcast, U.S. versus Shaw, the new intent test for the anti-kickback statute. Henry, this case, which was handed down by a three-judge panel on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in November of 2020, is a classic example of be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Uh, this case, as we'll tell you in the next uh, several minutes, has set out what seems to be a novel interpretation of the anti-kickback statute, more specifically the intent or knowledge requirement that uh, the government must prove in order to convict someone who's a recipient of kickbacks uh, under the anti-kickback statute. So, Henry, tell us a little bit about this case and uh, what it means, and then we can uh, kick this kickback case around a bit. Okay. And um, in the past, uh, as we'll discuss in a little more detail, um, the courts have been focused on the intent of the payor. This is the first time where we're looking at the intent of the person who received the kickback. And in this situation, you have Dr. Shaw, who's a podiatrist, but apparently there were 20 other people who were also involved, who would write a prescription for a compounded uh, medication. And a as the court explained in their opinion, compounded medications have to be uh, made up to order and therefore they're generally more expensive than ones that you can buy um, straight off the shelf. What Dr. Shaw and these others did, however, is they would write the prescription and then fax it to a company called PGRX Group. PGRX Group would then pass the prescription along to an actual compounding pharmacy that would uh, do the mixing and do whatever it is you had to do to compound the prescription. They would then bill third parties. And again, the amounts that they can bill third parties were a lot more than you could get for a commercially available product with TRICARE paying as much as $15,000 per tube for some compounded prescription. And the total cost of the TRICARE program of this scheme was over a million dollars. But this, and this is where it got interesting. The uh, compounding pharmacy would then take the money that it received from the third party, determined what uh, its profits were, would then kick back 50% of that profit to the PGRX group, which would then pay the, uh, the initial prescriber, Dr. Dr. Shaw in this case, uh, either a percent commission, and if you could see me, you could see I'm making air quotes around that, or they would uh, pay it as a flat fee, and Dr. Shaw accepted his payment as a flat fee. He was paid $5,000 per month initially to perform medical director services and on-site supervision, but he didn't know where their um, where PGRX's offices were, so he never performed any on-site supervision. In fact, he didn't do anything for the $5,000 a month he was he was receiving as supposedly a medical director. After seven months, they said, well, we want to change this arrangement. We're going to pay you instead of being a medical director for um, providing speaking services. Apparently, he did provide a few speaking arrangements, but it was pretty clear he was not doing $5,000 a month worth of services. And uh, if that wasn't enough, the fact that he accepted money for doing nothing and um, accepted a 
payment for speaking arrangements where he didn't do anything. The court pointed to uh, facts such as in the six months prior to this arrangement, he had 26 uh, compounded prescriptions in the six months after he entered into this, they had 209, so that the number of um, compounded prescriptions increased dramatically. And then there were the inevitable texts and emails between the PGRX, um, they call the masterminds in the agreement, principals, and Dr. Shaw, where they were complaining that he wasn't writing enough prescriptions. And he explained, hey, I was out of town. I'll make it up. And he even uh, discussed uh, whether he should use um, uh patches or creams and which one was more highly reimbursed. So uh, there was on the face a payment in return for his uh, providing these kickback or for providing these prescriptions to the RX group. And the question was, when he was indicted, was he paid for uh, a kickback for his um, prescriptions for these compounded prescriptions? Uh, drugs. Yeah, Henry, I think Mastermind is being extremely charitable with this crew when you see the kind of texts and emails. It's an example of the uh, old adage, uh, think a lot, write little, and speak less, or uh, think a lot, uh, speak little, and write less, or don't use text and email. <laughs> don't pay kickbacks, but yeah, if you don't, are, don't, don't, definitely don't use yeah, text. Yeah, don't text email. or email about it. Uh, and what happened uh, in this case when it uh, got to trial the trial judge gave the jury an instruction which said that if one reason for uh, Dr. Shaw engaging in this uh, arrangement was that he was accepting payments because it was in return for writing prescriptions, that he could be found guilty. The jury found him guilty. Dr. Shaw objected to that um, instruction and then used that as the basis for his appeal to the 11th Circuit. It came out of the Middle District of Georgia. And in the 11th Circuit, he said the jury should have been instructed that the government was required to prove that his main or only reason for accepting the payment was because it was made in return for writing prescriptions. That's been adopted by, I think, one circuit court. But all the other circuit courts agree that when you're looking at the kickback statute, if one purpose of the arrangement is to induce a referral, then the requisite intent is uh, proven for the purpose of the kickback statute. But when it got to the circuit court, the circuit court told the parties, we'd like you to brief for us and handle an oral argument the question of whether or not uh, this is even relevant. The purpose or the motivation of the defendant is irrelevant when the defendant, like Dr. Shaw, was the recipient of a payment that the government was alleging to be a kickback. Uh, and that uh, the um, court wanted to know, is it enough to prove that uh, as long as the recipient of the kickback accepted it knowingly and willfully, his motive, his reason, the purpose for doing so would be irrelevant. And that's how they ultimately came down in this case. And then they also ruled, well, because that was an easier test uh, for the government to um, uh, prove, and that they had proved in the trial court to the jury the uh, fact that there was one purpose, that this didn't prejudice Dr. Shaw, so they upheld his conviction. Now, this case is currently on uh, a petition for rehearing by the en banc um, panel of the 11th Circuit, 
But basically, Dr. Shaw got what he asked for, a different standard for determining the intent or the knowledge requirement of the anti-kickback statute, but it was one that he certainly didn't like. And the, the one purpose test didn't come out of whole cloth. They didn't make that up. That's been the law for 30 years. So I came, I started in a Pennsylvania case, case called U.S. v. Grieber. Then there was uh, and several other cases that were cited in the opinion, including um, the Bay State Ambulance case. And all of these looked at the issue of intent from the payor's perspective and kind of inferred the fact that the stat, because the statute applies to the payment or receipt, if one reason for the payment was to induce the referrals, then at least one purpose for re the receipt of the payment should have been to um, fulfill that unlawful intent and that you were uh, engaged in a kickback arrangement. But the court as Dan said, said, wait a second, that one purpose test does apply to the payer, and that will continue to be the test that the court, the government will have to prove when dealing with uh, trying to prove a case under the anti-kickback statute against the person or entity that pays the kickback. But when it comes to the receipt of the kickback, you no longer have to prove any intent whatsoever. All you have to prove, all the government has to prove, is that you were a knowing and willful participant in this arrangement. And given the fact that you had a sham medical director agreement, which was converted into a sham speaking uh, bureau agreement, which and and there was even these back and forth amongst the uh, between the pr principals that discussed uh, arrangements that that were definitely referral based and were dependent upon the doctor continuing to fax um, prescriptions for compounded prescription entities products to this PGRX group, then it was pretty clear that he was a knowing and willful participant in this arrangement. And that's all the government had to prove. Yeah, basically, the government uh, focused on the words in the statute that it's illegal for someone to knowingly and willfully offer or pay remuneration to induce a referral. So the person or the party in the transaction that induces is always the payor. The payee isn't somebody who induces. They get induced, but it doesn't matter. What the court said was motive matters for the payor crime, even though it does not matter for the payee crime. So from the standpoint of a recipient, uh, the burden that the government has to prove in a criminal case, or for that matter, uh, if you had a key TAM relator who was bringing a false claims action predicated on a violation of the anti-kickback statute in a civil case against a recipient of uh, referral payments, then all they would have to show is that they knowingly and willfully accepted those payments. And I think, Henry, didn't Dr. Shaw try to argue that he thought in good faith that the arrangement was legal, and therefore that would negate Cyanar. Generally, it would. It's not that he's a good guy or that he took these monies in good faith, but he claimed that he had a good faith belief that it was legal, but the court didn't buy that, correct? Right. I mean, and there was plenty of evidence that he accepted the payment 
knowing that this kickback arrangement was going on, even if they didn't call it a kickback, even if they called it percent commission or you call it medical director fees or speaking fees, the reality is that there was no purpose for the PGRX group other than to act as a middleman and facilitate the kickbacks. And therefore, uh, he either knew or should have known that he was engaged in a kickback arrangement. And as a result, he not only uh, has been convicted of and sentenced to 36 months in prison, but he received about $55,000, $55,300 during the course of this arrangement through the 5000 dollar a month fixed payment and the court required him to pay restitution in $55,340. So he ended up making about 10 bucks on the arrangement, got, uh, ended up 36 months in jail and with a whole bunch of money in legal fees. So if you're ever, if anything is ever proposed to you, if anyone wants to for you to serve as a medical director, you want to know, okay, what do I have to do? What uh, services am I to provide? How do I evidence those services? And how have they been valued to constitute the amount per month or per year that is being paid to me as a medical director? Because if you don't, if you think that that's the other party's perspective, this case is a good example of the fact that it's not. You accepted the money. You need to know what it is that you are being paid to do, and the court will impose a, a duty on you in order to comply with the anti-kickback statute to make sure that you are performing the services for which uh, you're being contracted. Yeah, and for the compliance officers and in-house counsel out there, I think this is a great teaching moment, especially for physicians uh, in a hospital employed otherwise that might have the misimpression that any payments that are made to them are the problem of whoever is paying it, not them. I think by showing this, that uh, recipients of things that the government can prove to be a kickback are probably more vulnerable to conviction or to liability on the civil side because of this lighter test that the 11th Circuit adopted. Now, this is just the 11th Circuit. As far as we know, another circuit has adopted this. It's a relatively new uh, take on the law. As I mentioned before, uh, Dr. Shaw had filed a petition for rehearing on Bonk. Uh, as of today, which is May 25, 2021, there hasn't been any action by the court on that petition. The citation for this, in case you're wondering, is 981 Fed Third 920. Again, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. But I think it's a very instructive case in that to the extent that you're uh, giving compliance training in a hospital or health system directed towards physicians or others who might possibly take money, not necessarily from the hospital or health system, but from outside sources, they need to know that as a result of this, the government's uh, burden is pretty light in terms of being able to prove that they violated the kickback statute in the kind of circumstances that we had here. And the Department of Justice lawyers talk to each other and they, they will have learned by now that our burden just became less. We have to prove less against the recipient of a kickback than the, the person who paid it. And I think that they will take that to heart and that we will see more cases unless 
compliance officers and others involved in the, the field become more diligent and make it clear that to the doctors out there that the receipt of the money is not only just as bad as the payment, but it's easier to prove that you did so, done something wrong. So hopefully this is helpful to you today. And uh, as always, uh, we enjoy you uh, tuning into our podcast or if you don't get it already, uh, go on our website, www.hortyspringer.com, and sign up for the Health Law Express, a weekly free update on any kind of health law cases like this. So um, be careful out there and understand that the test for the government to meet in a kickback case uh, is a lot less than it was a couple months ago. And that's never good news. Thank you. Thank you.